Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we bring in Kyle Mast and Amanda Wolf to answer your questions. So first, what you're going to do is make sure that you have a traditional IRA open and a Roth IRA open. Then you're going to contribute your money to the traditional IRA. You don't invest it, which normally goes against everything that you would ever learn about investing, but you leave it there for a couple of days for the cash to settle. Um, Sometimes it can be upwards of like a week or so if it's your first time doing it. But then once it says you have settled cash, um, then you'll have the option to actually roll it into the Roth IRAs. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and I am here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to everybody's story, because I truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, or start your own business, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards your dreams. Now, if you are a longtime listener, you will know that Scott Trench usually joins me today, but he's on a break. So I am here with Kyle and Amanda, and we are going to have an awesome time answering your questions. But If you are a longtime listener, you also know I have an attorney who makes me say the contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice, and neither uh, Scott, nor Amanda, nor Kyle, nor I, nor Bigger Pockets is engaged in the provision of legal tax or any other advice. You should seek your own advice from professional advisors, including lawyers and accountants, regarding the legal tax and financial implications of any financial decision you contemplate. We have a new segment here called Money Moments, where we share a money hack, tip, or trick to help you on your financial journey. Today's money moment is, if you still carry cash, always pay with a bill versus exact change. This may sound crazy, but a great tip to save. Break the bill and then put the extra change in a jar. Every month, take your change and put it into your savings account, and you will have a nice nest egg in no time. If you have a money tip or trick to share with us, please email moneymoment at biggerpockets.com. All right, before we start, let's take a quick break. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Becoming a Navy Federal Credit Union member could help you earn more and save more. Take advantage of competitive rates with their certificate options or start saving for that next big money milestone with a low minimum deposit. Add money at any time 
and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long-term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe a live-in flip, or feeling ready to consolidate some of that high-interest credit card debt, you could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed-rate home equity loan with zero closing costs, or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses much more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loans subject to approval. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side hustled your way to some extra income, flipped a house, or finally bought your first rental property, your moves made a big difference in your life last year. Now it's time to make the most of your moves. Switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. And we're back. Kyle Mast, Amanda Wolf, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Happy to be back. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for having me back. It's, it's always good to be here. Thanks for having me back. We asked in our Facebook group, what questions do you have for our money experts? And you guys did not disappoint. So thank you so much for asking these questions in advance. If you have questions at any time, you can always go to facebook.com slash groups slash BP money. And our amazing community will also help answer your questions. But we have experts here today, so we're going to take advantage. Up first, when you want to own your own business, but you have bad debt, should you pay off those debts first before buying a cash flowing business with no money down? Kyle, I'm going to start with you. I had this is we could talk about this particular one all day long. I'm going to let you uh, talk about this for a bit. Owning your own business is something that I really think a lot of people should consider. It's not for everyone, but it's a very good thing. Um, in this particular question, the bad debt issue is is the thing that concerns me, I, I would want to ask a few more questions. Do you have, what, what's the current job that you have? Are you getting paid really well? Like how fast could you knock out this bad debt? Is it like $10,000 that you could knock out in three to six months if you live really simply? Are we talking about $80,000 of credit card debt? And then a follow-up to that would be, what kind of business are you looking at? You know, this it's a cash flowing business with no money down. So the first thing that comes into my mind, and it probably shouldn't, is is like a, a multi-level marketing. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Like no money down, we can get into this business. You can you know invite your friends to these parties, and um, it, so there's 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 different things that we need to look at here. But I'm I'm a huge proponent. If you can get into owning your own business, especially with no money down, that's that's a great way to go. I'll maybe share a little bit of experience being a CFP um, and then launching out to your own business from that avenue. Cause it's probably similar to a lot of different businesses you might do. You have some costs, you know, like it, for me, I had to get that certification, but I would say all in launching the business, probably $5,000, which is very lean, um, for that type of business, but it can definitely be done. Um, the second thing is that you can also, and you said a cash flowing business with no money down. So I'm going to, I'm going to assume it's not a multi-level marketing 
business. I'm going to assume it's actually say it's a pressure, pressure washing business, um, in the local community and the no money down is the current owner will allow you to pay them over time out of the earnings that you make. You know, that's a very common thing. And that's a great way to go into business It's a very good way because the, if you create some sort of agreement where the current owner is paid on the revenue that comes in, you're incentivized to work harder so that you make more money for yourself and for your family. And then they're rewarded for essentially seller financing that by they get maybe paid a percentage of what you're bringing in. I mean, that's, that's probably the way I would structure it. Depends on the business though. If there's some assets in the business, they're not going to want to do that. If it's a clientele business, they might be more willing to do that. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, but I would say definitely look into it. The bad debt thing worries me and the no money down cash flowing business worries me because I don't know what that is. There's a lot of things out there where people are really excited about, I'm just going to go do this. And it's just not, it's not the 11 PM. I should say 1 AM, 11 PM is the latest. I stay up like 1 AM infomercial business that comes on where you, you can just go do it and you don't have to put any work into it. Real entrepreneurs don't work like that. It, it's, it's good work, but it's, it's hard work to get into something. Um, yeah, Amanda, any comments on that? Yeah, no, I think you bring up a really good point of first and foremost, what type of a business it is and why is it no money down? Is somebody lending you the money to like get going and then there's going to be monthly costs that you'll be incurring or annual costs that you'll be incurring. If I look at like my own journey in being an entrepreneur, my business did start with $0 and it was pretty much $0, maybe 20 bucks a month for maybe the good first like year and a half. Then it started becoming profitable. Once it started becoming profitable, you know, then I was able to put some tools in place to make it a little more like run a little more efficiently. But I think that one thing that, you know, um, striving entrepreneurs, I should say, should know is a lot of times your business does not make money in the beginning. So are there going to be costs that come along with it, even if it's no money down now that you're going to have to cover until it does make money? Are you sure that this is a thing that people want to buy? For example, the MLM um, piece of, of this, the multi-level marketing, are you going to be like harassing your friends and family to buy your products? Is this something that people really want? So looking at it as how much money will it cost you ongoing? If it's truly zero and it's just your time, for sure, you know, I say go for it. But being an entrepreneur is really being an entrepreneur is really really hard work, especially if you're doing it alongside a nine to five job, which I can say is me. Um, it is a lot of work and it's not sustainable forever. So I would say if you're just like dipping your toe in, see what you're signing up for long term, um, and if it is going to cost you money, you know, monthly, annually, then I would personally get rid of that bad debt first before going all in and looking at a business that truly did cost zero. I have a lot to unpack with this question. Let's start at the very beginning. When you have bad debt, what does bad debt mean? I think we can all agree that a mortgage is traditionally not bad debt. It's good debt because it's a lower rate and it's like it's on your house. You're leveraging a place to live. Um, credit card debt can be 15, 18, 27% interest, which is awful. It's heartbreaking that they can even charge that much. But that's typically what bad debt is. So if you've got, like Kyle, to your point, you said, um, what what about your income? What about your job? And what kind of debt? If you're making $20,000 a year and you have $80,000 in credit card debt, you have no business buying a business. Um, if you have $80,000 
is as your income at $20,000 in like medical debt. That's a less bad kind of debt. Then, you know, then we can talk. If it's a lower interest rate, we can talk. You know, bad debt has levels. Like when should, when you want to own your own business, but you have bad debt, should you pay off those debts first before buying a cash flowing business with no money down? Yeah, it depends. I think all of these questions are going to be first answer is, well, it depends. It depends on all these different things that we're bringing in. Um, Amanda made a really good point about costs. Just because it costs you nothing to get into this business doesn't mean it's not going to cost you money on an ongoing basis. I can't think of any business that has absolutely zero ongoing costs. Even though they're low, they, they you, every business has a cost. Um, and the the what kind of business is like a cash flowing business with no money down? What business is cash flowing with no money down? I think even those MLMs are like cost money. Um, our we did a an episode on. Uh, multi-level marketing and LuLaRoe specifically, uh, episode 369. And I think at one point it was like $5,000 to start off. There are there are lots of ways to start a business. I mean, Amanda, you started with basically no upfront costs outside of like website hosting and, you know, the cost to make good videos and make good, uh, like good looking Instagram pictures and things like that. You know, uh, do you do all of your own graphics or do you hire somebody out to do that? There are ways to get around not having like a full on website if you have a social media page. So I didn't have one in the beginning. Um, and I was using, you know, free resources that allow you to make graphics. I was just using my iPhone for all videos. So you can start with zero for something like that. Um, then once I started, you know, seeing that, yes, there is an audience for my topic, people are interested. Then I got to a thing where I was spending, you know, $20 a month on something to help my graphics come together a little more easily Then, you know, um, creating a, a thing so people could schedule calls with me. So the costs were then low, but it was after I made sure there was a demand for the services um, and then ongoing, making sure you keep those costs low, because that's another thing is it's really easy. There's so many efficiency tools out there and it's really, really easy to kind of like, um, let that let, let that get out of control and then you're like tens of thousands of dollars a month in like hard costs that you have to pay and then you know that can get out of control so you know that's much further down your business owning journey but i would say like start with as little as possible especially if you have debt if this business that you're going into is is truly nothing down see if you can keep it at zero for as long as possible make sure there is a demand um and then go from there but to answer your, I guess your other, that was kind of a long-winded answer to that, but to answer your other question, Mindy, yes. So now that I'm in a position where, um, you know, my business is earning money, I'm still working a nine to five. I did have to get to a point where I was outsourcing some of that work, but I did it all by myself in the beginning. Like it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, so now, now I do have a, a team of some help. And Kyle, you said it cost about $5,000. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, and that's probably on the low end and everything is different. Uh, Amanda and Mindy are making really good points here about, um, and it's kind of, we're not hitting on it directly, but I, I want to point it out part-time, like starting it part-time on the side is a very good way about, uh, starting your own business, buying a business, owning a business. It's very low risk. You know, in this question, we don't know what your current job is. Um, hopefully you have a job, you know, and hopefully it's a decent paying job. And if it is, you're, I would, my goal would be to 
increase your flexibility so that you can try this other business, or if you're ready to start a business, create flexibility in your current job so that you can do that on the side before you jump. Um, you know, Amanda's talking about like as her business grew and as she had a little bit more income, um, you can do more things. And another good point she made in there, the expenses, you know, as you, even from the beginning, you know, as you add these little monthly expenses, recurring revenue is the lifeblood of a business. Recurring expenses will kill a business really fast. Um, and well, I shouldn't say really fast. It actually will bleed you pretty slowly. And then all of a sudden it, it really hurts. It, it'll die. Um, but that's, that's a good way to look at it. And I, you know, like even when I started the CFP and I started my own business, I think I made $13,000 the first year, but I have my family raises Christmas trees and I went to Arizona for two months and sold Christmas trees on Christmas tree lots to people in the desert, you know, and I'm from Oregon. Um, but that's what I had to do to make ends meet and pay off student loans. And then, oh, you know, about three years in for a lot of businesses where you hit the sweet spot, you know, people start to, especially in a service business, people, people start to know who you are, what you do, referring starts to happen. Uh, but if you can do the part-time thing in the meantime to really cushion that and the bad debts, if I had to answer this question directly, so we're, we're, we're doing this depends thing all around, we're dancing around what your situation is. If I had, if you pin me down and said, should I pay the bad debts off before buying the business? I would say yes. That would be my default answer because it just makes everything else easier down the road. You know, do whatever you can to just hammer those out. And then you can do a lot more. Um, but again, it does depend. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Kyle. I absolutely agree. If you want to own your own business, you want to start uh, just like real estate, you want to start investing from a position of strength, a, a position of financial strength. That means you are financially secure. You are in a good financial position. You don't have a bunch of bad debt. You have a good income. You can easily cover the expenses that this new investment will generate, if any. So if it's a small business, it's going to generate expenses. You personally need to be able to cover those expenses, assume the business makes zero. Just because it says it's cash flowing doesn't mean it actually is. Okay. I think we have covered this. I think that uh, th those are some pretty good answers and some great tips from Amanda and Kyle. Uh, let's move to bonds. I'm not a big bond fan, so I'm relying heavily on Amanda and Kyle for this one. Should we take old bonds, I bonds, government bonds, war bonds, from 2000 to 2010 and cash them out and put them in the stock market? I would say yes, because I don't like bonds. So, But that just comes from a position of uh, uneducation. I am uneducated about bonds. So Kyle, what do you think about bonds? Uh, well, here's where I'll, I'll put my little disclaimer in. Um, I, I am a certified financial uh, planner, but... I, I am not giving specific advice to this person or anyone on this podcast for their specific situation. I'll just kind of give you some ideas of what I've seen um, and my personal opinions too. Um, but I would say from from this standpoint, there's there's a few other things I would need to know. You know, like how much uh, are you going to hit get hit from a tax standpoint on these bonds? You know, like what was the price you bought them at? What are you selling them at? Um, you know, there's a couple different types of bonds you're talking about here and we won't go into the details on them but in general I'm with Mindy I don't like bonds for the long term if you're someone who has a substantial amount of wealth or you have enough maybe I'll just say enough um, and you like to 
uh, sleep good at night and you don't like the stock market going up and down, that doesn't help you sleep good at night, then bonds can be a fine thing. You just need to remember that you're not going to beat inflation with bonds. You might beat it a year or two here or there, um, but in the long run, it's going to be basically when you're owning debt, a lot of times you're just keeping up with inflation. If you're owning good debt, if you're taking risk and owning a little bit more riskier debt, then you can maybe beat inflation, but you're also taking on more risk to do that. Um, my personal opinion is well, right now the stock market, I think it's, it's probably a, a decent time for the long run to be, if you have some and you have the risk appetite for it and you don't need the funds in the, in the long or in the short term, five to 10 years, I would say if you need them in less than five years, you need to really think through putting them in, in a full equity, uh, stock portfolio. But uh, I, I like real estate and stocks for the long run. They just perform better in the long run. And if you have a cushion of cash to weather the short term issues, that's where investments should be. If you're serious about building wealth in the long run, nothing wrong with bonds though. Like if you're, you know, I've, I've worked with clients in the past that have live well within their means, whether they're wealthy or even, you know, maybe just your normal average American household, but they live well within their means and they have good money habits and they don't like the risk of the stock market. They don't need to shoot for the fences. They don't want to. They'd rather just see the dividends coming in from their bonds. And then when the bond comes due, they'll recash it in and get another one. And that's, that's fine. It's not what I would do, but I'm not them. And it helps them sleep good at night. And I have gotten those calls before from clients that are not comfortable with being in the stock market and it goes down and they are in, you know, kind of hysteria and you don't want to be there. You don't want to make a bad decision. Uh, so I, it, in general, if you're looking for the best return and the best builder of wealth in the long run, bonds are not the way to go, but it's a personal preference thing. Yeah. So I think I'll also add the same disclaimer, <laughs> not a CFP and everything that I'm sharing here on the podcast is all just my opinion. But I think as far as bonds go, I don't think there's anything wrong with having some bonds. And for this person, I don't know how old they are or what they would be using it for, but I would say, are you in the wealth preservation stage of your life or the wealth accumulation stage? Like, are you 25 or are you 65? So I think it just really depends on where you are in your life and how many bonds you might already have in your portfolio. Are you starting to get a little over leveraged on them? And um, if that's the case, then, you know, I would probably cash them out and buy stocks because of all of Kyle's points that he just made around, you know, the stock market, we know, in theory goes up over time. So as long as you're planning to put them in there and leave them alone for a while, then theoretically they should they should be going up over time. Um, if you're going to need those funds in the short term, though, then you probably want to stick them somewhere like a high yield savings account or somewhere where the funds are going to be more accessible and you can access them without penalty. So bonds are also not my favorite, but um, again, at my age, I think having a smaller allocation of bonds is better. But again, all the Kyle's points really just depend really just depends on your risk tolerance um, and the stage of life you're in. I want to maybe point out too um, that the bonds are not always uh, they're supposedly less risk as as kind of how our industry will advertise them. But as you can see in a, in a increasing interest rate environment, which we've had recently, which is hard, was hard for us to think about for about 40 years because we were in a decreasing interest rate environment for so long, but in an increasing environment, bonds values go the opposite direction of the interest rates as they increase. So it's not a, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, I want to be very conservative. So I'll move everything to bonds. 
that's actually less conservative if you were to go like 50% bonds, 50% stocks. And you just have to kind of wrap your head around that. But it'd be like putting all your eggs in a bond basket. So, you know, just make sure you're not doing one thing. If you're, if you want to sleep good at night, don't put them all in bonds because that will, that'll hurt at some point. Um, you can put a lot of it in bonds, uh, but just don't put quite all of it there. It's not the, there's no complete safe haven. Okay, before we move on, let's take one last break to hear a word from today's show sponsors. Becoming a Navy Federal Credit Union member could help you earn more and save more. Take advantage of competitive rates with their certificate options or start saving for that next big money milestone with a low minimum deposit. Add money at any time and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe a live-in flip, or feeling ready to consolidate some of that high-interest credit card debt, you could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed-rate home equity loan with zero closing costs, or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses much more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loans subject to approval. Real talk for a sec, gentlemen. 52% of men over 40 experience some form of ED between the ages of 40 and 70. But it's always been a taboo topic. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable and discreet sexual health treatments, all from the comfort of your home. That means no hassle and no uncomfortable doctor's visits. Just answer a series of questions on their site and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option for you and ship it direct for free and in discreet packaging, all 100% online. No insurance necessary. You pay one low price for treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. Hims has hundreds of thousands of trusted subscribers. If ED is something you're struggling with, Hims can help change that. Start your free online visit today at hims.com slash BP money. That's H I M S.com slash BP money for your personalized ED treatment options. Hims.com slash BP money. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash BP money for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You're busy building your retirement accounts and emergency reserve, but what about life insurance? Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. The best time to get a policy? Now, since life insurance rates typically increase as you get older. But don't worry, with Policy Genius, you can compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks. Already have a policy through work? It may not offer enough protection. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Their award-winning agents work for you to find the policy that best fits your needs. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Low risk, not no risk. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep. What are your thoughts on direct indexing? And Kyle, can you give us a definition of direct indexing? Yeah, um, so it can kind of mean a few different things sometimes, but essentially the simple answer is usually you're picking the stocks to that would be in an index fund. So if there's an S&P 500 index fund, you're just mirroring 
that those 500 stocks, but instead of buying a mutual fund that owns them or an ETF that owns them, you're buying them individually yourself. Um, you might not buy all 500, but you might buy an, a, a spread that's close to that. You know, you might buy 50 that represent the 500 roughly, um, but that's kind of the general idea behind it. Oh, so my thoughts on direct indexing is it sounds like a whole lot of work to to save pennies or to make extra pennies. Um, not a fan. No, I'm with you, Mindy. Your, your um, initial thoughts, I'm on the same page. I think that they take a long time to set up. They can be expensive to set up too. I mean, you know, depending what you're doing, sometimes you can implement some like additional tax saving strategies for yourself. But I don't know, I feel like ain't nobody got time for that to sit around and like pick and choose what is going to be inside this basket. Let's just pick, you know, the, the tried and trues and, and move on. That's my opinion on that. Totally. That's that's where I land. I, for really wealthy individuals, sometimes it makes sense because you can get some of these huge tax breaks if you want to like harvest spe specific so stocks. However, Amanda made a good point. Who's got time for that? If someone's really wealthy, they want to be spending their time doing something else. Um, and sometimes they'll maybe have money managers do that for them. But the fees you pay the money manager, you might lose that tax saving. So it's just keep it simple. I mean, don't try to uh, do something that's being done really well by a good indexing company. Love it. All right. This is a question we get a lot. For folks with several investment account opportunities, but not enough money to fill all the buckets, how would they prioritize Roth IRA, 403B, 401k, that sort of thing, 457? Uh, so, so for this purpose, I would equate 403B and 401k as kind of the same thing. They're just like the same but different depending on where you work. So how would you prioritize Roth IRA, 401k slash 403b, 457, and taxable brokerage? There are obvious differences for each, but I'd love to hear their advice about prioritization and use of Roth versus non-Roth for the average middle-class investor who probably can't max everything out. Um, so yeah, so I would personally lump together the 403B, 401k, 403b, 457. So those are all employer-sponsored plans. So my favorite order of operations is first to make sure that you get that employer match if you're offered one. Um, we like to say that's free money, but also it's part of your comp. When they configured your comp, they were expecting you to take advantage of that match, right? So first and foremost, get that match. If it's 3%, you know, put in 3%. Um, my second favorite after that is to max out the HSA if you're eligible for one. So I know that one was not listed, but um, a lot of people don't realize that the HSA is also an investment account as well. Um, and it is this like triple tax advantage unicorn account that um, no other account gets triple tax advantages. So that is my second favorite one. And and the limit on that for an individual for 2023 is I believe 3850. Um, so that would be my second account. Then I would be hitting the Roth IRA, which is 6500 a year. And then after that, I would look to see how much money am I left over with. So we've done the 6500, we've done the 3850, and then the match. How much money do we have left? Can we put some more into you know, our 401k, 403b, 457, um, but then still have a little leftover for a brokerage, which that is like, I feel like maybe where my opinion might differ because I don't want to put every extra dollar into a retirement account. I like having a small amount at least to put into a brokerage account. Um, I think that the brokerage account can be used for some of those like five to seven to 10 to 15 years, like goals, kind of like a super-sized savings account, if you will, but you're investing it for those long-term goals. 
um, goals that you might not even know that you have today. So I like leaving a little bit of money for the brokerage, but you know, in summary, that's kind of my order. So the employer match, the HSA, if you're eligible for one, the Roth IRA, go back to the 401k slash brokerage. Yeah. I love it. That's, that's a great order. I, the only maybe thing I would add is the 457 account. When you get to that point, um, if you have that as a possibility, you might want to look at that and your current employer rules on that one, because that is actually an account that you can oftentimes take from earlier at an earlier age. Um, so if you're planning your retirement sometimes, and sometimes you could dump a whole lot more into it than the normal maximums. There's some nuances around those tax codes, but just pay attention to that. But um, that's kind of later down the line there. But yeah, I like Amanda's order. I wouldn't change anything. Tagging off of that HSA conversation, here's a new question. I have children that we have also been saving our receipts for to file against the HSA. Can I still file for reimbursement of their procedure that happened this year in 20 years when they are no longer my dependents as they will be well into their 30s by then? That's a good one. Um so here, uh, here's where I would land on that one. I would say probably yes, but don't, <laughs> don't sue me. <laughs> what, um, I think, I think the way the rule is written is that if the, the child needs to be your dependent and on the high deductible healthcare plan to be able to use HSA money. And my, I think it would be easy to make a case that the, the kid is 12 years old. They break their leg. Um, you're re reimbursing for that 20 years later, there's no limit on reimbursements for HSA accounts. They were a dependent on your tax return for 2023 when they were 12, when they broke their leg. Um, I think so. I don't know that I would push that limit. I, I would maybe, you know, if you want to be safe, I would reimburse yourself while they're still dependents of yours, all the reimbursements that you need for your kids. That would be a safe way to play it. But you could play it the less safe way of reimbursing later on. You're probably going to be okay. It's you might have to defend it. Who knows? Um, but and there might be at that point a tax court case that tells you one way or not, uh, one way or the other, what you can do. But you could always save the medical expenses for yourself and your spouse um, and reimburse those. That's an easy one. But yeah, this is a good question. I don't know if there's. That makes me want to like do some research and, and figure out if there's actually, if they've lined that out somewhere. I don't know. Do you know, Amanda? Like my gut tells me yes, because to your point, as long as they were, you know, qualified dependents during the year um, that the incident happened and that the receipt that you're looking for reimbursement occurred, I'm pretty sure yes. This is a trick question. This is a tough one. Um, but yeah, I, I think so. And I think that that is like one of the most powerful things about the HSA, though, in my opinion, is that if you have the funds to cover those medical expenses now, you get to invest that money, let it grow all those years and then pay yourself back. And you got to like earn money on your money all those years. So that to me is why the HSA is so awesome. So my gut tells me, yes, it sounds like you're already doing some like future planning, which I love. Uh, but my gut tells me, yes, but to Kyle's point, don't sue us. Everything I have read says that if your child is eligible and covered today, you can pay the bill in cash today and then take reimbursement later. But I have never seen a, an end date on that reimbursement. So you can allow it to grow and collect later, but there's no 
specific guidance on that. And now I'm going to reach out to all of my financial geek friends and ask them the same question. Uh, and I will have an answer for you in the Facebook groups when I get definitive answers. Uh, all right, moving on. I'm retired with about $1 million invested. Paying my advisor 1% would cost me $10,000 a year. No thanks. I'd rather pay someone hourly for help a couple of times a year. Is this reasonable? Yes, it is reasonable. It's called a CFP, a fee-only financial advisor. Hey, Kyle, have you ever heard of this before? Do you know where we could find a fee-only financial advisor? Yes, I'm glad you asked. Um, yes, that's Mindy spot on. <laughs> this is who you want to talk to. You know, Find someone who, who charges hourly or a lot of fee-only financial advisors, certified financial planners, CFPs, will do retainer. If you're someone that you, you want to meet with someone two or three times a year, um, and if that's an ongoing thing, you probably want someone that is going to, you're probably going to pay them on a retainer uh, fee of some sort that I have, a, I have, I'm going to push back on this question a little bit because in the financial independence community, um, there's a, there's a real push against this percentage charged again, that financial advisors charge. And it's, it's very understandable. And most of the time it's charged on investment accounts to try to get more performance. And that's a terrible, that's, that's a waste of money. However, if you're to this person is asking this question, if you want to talk to a really good fee only CFP about your million dollar portfolio in the context of your overall financial plan, a really good one with 10 to 15 years of experience is probably not going to take you hourly. He's probably not going to meet with you. He or she is probably not going to meet with you once or twice a year. It's not worth their time that they, and I hate to say that, but that they're, they want to work with someone who values that, that time so much that they would, they'd probably offer you a retainer and guess what their retainer would cost a year, probably five to $10,000 for someone who has maybe a moderately to a little more complicated financial planning life. Uh, like if you have a family, if you have a job, your spouse has a job, you own a house, you maybe have one rental property, you have a million dollar portfolio. And if you want advice on all of that from someone with a, with a good amount of experience, the price tag is not going to be real cheap, but it's going to be worth it. I, I can guarantee you, if you speak with a really qualified fee only CFP in, in about 15 minutes of looking at documents, if you haven't spoken one for a while, they'll probably save you the $10,000 right there. Um, that might not happen every year. It might be 50,000 that they save you some years because of a life transition or something, but there's, there's some real value in paying for the paying well for good advice. Um, so I know the person asking this question, you know, that 1% fee is a big deal. And I, I really don't like it in our industry where there's a lot of this 1% that we charge and we build this portfolio and it's supposed to do better. And it's a bunch of hogwash and we don't provide any other value. There should be social security planning. There should be insurance planning, disability insurance planning. There should be retirement planning, real estate. Like they should be looking at everything. But if you want, if that's what you want, it's going to cost money to do that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my semi-strong opinion, I guess. <laughs> And you can hear more tips from Kyle on episode 41 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. And that one is called How to Find the Best Possible CFP for Your Needs 
with Kyle Mast. And he goes through just in really great detail what a CFP could do for you. I think you shared several uh, several things that I was not even aware of that if I had hired you to do my financial planning, I would have been like, oh, that would have been way better. That would have been way better. That would have been way better. Like I don't have a 529 plan for my children. And the reason I don't is because a hundred years ago, either it, they changed the plan or I was wrong uh, and misunderstood. I thought that if you put money into a 529 plan and then it didn't come, you didn't use it for uh, for school, you only got what you put in. So let's say I put in 10000 but it grew to 100000 I would lose the 90000 And I don't know why I thought this. Maybe there was some sort of thing on um, th- like the state that I was in where their specific state college plan was like that. But if I had spoken with the CFP, then my kid's college would be paid for tax deferred. Or whatever the 529 plan is. So yeah, there there are some really good CFPs that will do hourly, and they'll charge you. You know, it's going to be anywhere from 150 to probably up to 350 dollars an hour, uh, but it will be worth it. You know, they'll probably ask you for all of your documents ahead of time to do some prep. You know, if I were doing it, you know, I'm I'm done. I sold my firm. I'm FI. But if if I were doing it, you would be. I would send you a list of documents to send to me insurance statements, tax return, look over everything. And then I'd have like an hour long, hour and a half long meeting with you and just plow through things. And then probably a little bit of a follow-up. There are advisors that do something like that. I used to charge about a thousand dollars for something like that because of the hours before the hour and a half to do it. And then the follow-up, the problem is, is that if someone's good, even that that starts to not make as much sense for them because the the downside is we, as financial planners, we really love to see people succeed. And I have no follow-up with you in the future to make sure you took action on the items. You didn't mistakenly do something a little bit different. Whereas if someone's meeting with you regularly on at every six months or every year, then you can see where we need to make an adjustment along the way. Absolutely. No, I think that's great. And I think that you don't have to go total lone wolf or total like super managed fund. The CFP, the fee only CFP could be a great uh, alternative, but you do need to recognize that they do have a value and that value costs money and you're paying them for their expertise and their expertise isn't just like one hour of a hundred dollars worth of work. It's, you know, they have to, a, a good CFP is going to, like you said, review your your current situation and your goals. If they don't do that, what's the point of having a conversation with them? Can I also just like add in that whichever route you decide to go, like having some financial literacy under your own belt is going to be really helpful to make sure that one, if you're meeting with the hourly person, that you're getting them the right information, that you're asking them the right types of questions, that you can answer them the right way. If you're meeting with somebody who charges a percent, making sure you don't get taken advantage of because there are people out there, right? I feel like we hear about like the scary people who take advantage of people, especially when they're taking percentages of our portfolio, but just at least having a baseline level of financial literacy so you can have a seat at the table with whoever you decide to sit and meet with. And does anybody know where we can find a fee-only financial advisor? Where, Mindy? The xyplanningnetwork.com. Sponsored by our or created by our friend, 
Michael Kitsis. Yeah, the XY Planning Network is a phenomenal place to go to find a, a fee-only CFP. Uh, it's a network that I was a member of while I was practicing. Uh, it's a network of, to give you an idea of what it feels like, you, some listeners have been to the Bigger Pockets podcast or Bigger Pockets conference. I've gone to different industry conferences and most of them focus on you know how to improve the revenue of your firm or how to increase your business, uh, get more clients, bring in more money. It's basically how the advising industry, investment industry focuses. The XY Planning Network conference is like just completely different and so client focused. These people are family people. They are very real people that are super smart and they are so focused on getting to know a person personally, their goals and creating a financial plan without any, um, without any, what's the word I'm looking for? Outside influence by way of commissions that pay you way too much money to do, to recommend stupid investments. That's exactly the word I was looking for. Yes. Yes. They have no dog in the hunt other than the fee that you're paying them. They're not getting paid some other, some other way. And it's a very good group started by some very, very smart and very good people uh, that I recommend to people all the time. All right. Our last question. Let's wrap this up with the good one. The big one. Can Kyle and Amanda walk us through the process step-by-step of how to contribute to a Roth IRA via the backdoor process. Amanda, I'm going to start with you on this one. Sure. Um, So maybe just to add context in case people don't know, in order to contribute to a Roth IRA, you have to make under a certain income. So in 2023, I believe it's under 153,000 if you're single and 228,000 if you're married. But if you make over that as your modified adjusted gross income, then you can still get around that through something called a backdoor Roth IRA, which is a sketchy name, but a perfectly legal way to still be able to contribute to the Roth IRA. So first, what you're going to do is make sure that you have a traditional IRA open and a Roth IRA open. Then you're going to contribute your money to the traditional IRA. You don't invest it, which normally goes against everything that you would ever learn about investing, but you leave it there for a couple of days for the cash to settle. Um, Sometimes it can be upwards of like a week or so if it's your first time doing it. But then once it says you have settled cash, um, then you'll have the option to actually roll it into the Roth IRA. So depending what firm you're at, sometimes it says convert to Roth or transfer to Roth. At that point, you're going to move that cash over. um, And you want to make sure you don't wait too long. You don't want it to start accruing interest. You'll run into other problems. Uh, But you'll transfer that cash over to the Roth IRA. And now you can invest it. And I feel like a lot of people, when I walk them through it, they're like, that seems unnecessary. Why am I putting it into one account to transfer over? I didn't make the rule up. None of us made the rule up, but that's how you have to do it to be able to get around um, the income limit for the Roth IRA if you still want some of that tax-free gross goodness. Um, But you got to contribute to the traditional first. You don't invest it. You roll it over. Um, And I'll also add that you can do this multiple times a year. So in um, 2023, the Roth IRA limit for um, an individual is $6,500. So you don't have to do 6,500 at once. You can do some, you know, every month as you would any of your other normal investments. Um, so just want to call that out, and then want to call out like one really big watch out as well. There's there's a lot of caveats. It's a really easy thing to actually execute, but there are some watch outs. Like I said, roll it over quickly, get it, you know, then get it invested. The other thing is. If you have any other traditional IRAs out there, like if you did, you know, a 401k rollover at one point in your life and now it's sitting in a traditional IRA, then there's something called a pro rata rule, which would um, mean 
in summary that you're not going to get that same that same tax-free goodness because the IRA kind of lumps your IRAs together. The government kind of lumps your IRAs together at that point. But that was probably a long-winded answer. That's how you actually execute it. But I just want to make sure that nobody gets in trouble by doing the backdoor Roth IRA and then kind of like getting, can I say like screwed over? Can I say that? Getting screwed over later um, with this prorated rule. So I just wanted to call that out. Yeah, that's a really good overview. Um this is a really cool tool for people that are bumping over that income limit. And uh, like Amanda said, you know, there's some some rules that you need to watch out for. That pro rata rule is a really big one. Um, people don't realize, you know, like if you, yeah, if it, basically the IRS looks in, in terms of this type of conversion, they look at all of your IRA accounts as one piece. And if you have um, non-deductible contributions, which is what we're talking about here that you put into an IRA and then you convert that into the Roth IRA, but you also have deductible contributions that you deducted and then you convert some of that gets taxed. Some of that is non-taxable and you got to do this calculation. Like it gets, gets kind of messy. Um, the easiest way is if you don't have any other IRAs and you just have, you're just doing these backdoors. Um, but yeah, the other, the other thing that I would say, this is, this is an interesting rule and Kitsis, Michael Kitsis, of course, he has an article on this and I would encourage anyone who is diving into this to read that article or at least the summary of it uh, gives a really good overview of what to watch out for and how to do this but i i would also there's some gray areas as far as the timing of, of how fast you should do it there's this uh i forget what it's called basically the step transaction rule of like one transaction if are you doing it so fast that it's two transactions become, become one transaction or are you doing it in a manner where there's a couple separate transactions um, from the IRS standpoint. And there's a couple IRS court cases that are not real clear, but basically there's two different rule or two different forms of thought on it. And some of them it's like to do it right away, get it done. Um, well, I should say three. And there's a lot of people that say like wait one statement cycle to do the conversion. And then there's some people that say you should wait a year. Um, nobody's right or wrong at this point. There is not a definitive answer. Um, and you can also, you know, Amanda is talking about doing the, the nice and clean and simple, easy way of not investing it so that you get it converted and you don't have to worry about a little bit of growth in there, which then you have to file taxes on and pay tax as a conversion. There's no penalty, but you'd pay tax on it. Um, but that's something that if you left it in there for a year, you would probably want to invest it during that year. And maybe your 6,000 grows to 6,000 200 or something. And then there's 200 in there that you got to pay tax on as growth that when you convert it over to. So there's a few things to watch out for. And we are, we're kind of going long on this one, but it's really good. I just want to make sure people don't get in trouble with it too, because if you do it wrong, the, the look back, there's kind of a, a pretty decent penalty for having it wrong for a few years that you have to pay to undo it. Uh, but yeah, it's a really cool tool tool for people in any income to be able to get into the Roth, which is really nice. Yeah. And if you've got the income to allow you to do this, then you have the income to get guidance from somebody who knows what they're doing, who can help you out, even if it's just training you how to do it the first time so that you can do it in the future. Do not be afraid to pay qualified individuals for their expertise and their service to help you learn how to do something so you're not stuck with these weird tax bills that the IRS doesn't care that you didn't know how to do it. They're going to tax you on and fine you and all of that because that's how they roll. All right, Amanda and Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and more importantly, your expertise. Amanda, where can people find out more about you? 
You can find me on my socials, She Wolf of Wall Street, um, She Wolf, W O L F E of Wall Street, um, and my website, SheWolfOfWallStreet.com. Have uh, lots of free, fun goodies out there for you to keep you on your financial literacy journey. Awesome. We will include links to that in our show notes. And Kyle, where can people find out more about you? Uh, yeah, just I have a website, KyleMass.com, where I write some different financial writings a little bit. I write some letters to my sons that have financial leanings towards them. And then I'm also on Twitter at Financial Kyle. Um, I don't do a ton. I'm on a road trip right now with my family. I, you know, I'm spending a lot of time with my young family right now. So don't expect to get all, all kinds of goodies from me like you would from Amanda um, on the website. I'm a dog mom. I have more time. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, Kyle has uh, do what small twins. So that'll take up like so much time. Uh, all right, that wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. She is the She Wolf of Wall Street, Amanda Wolf, and he is Kyle Mast. I am Minnie Jensen saying, catch you on the flip side. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpocketsmoney. Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. Becoming a Navy Federal Credit Union member could help you earn more and save more. Take advantage of competitive rates with their certificate options or start saving for that next big money milestone with a low minimum deposit. Add money at any time and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe a live-in flip, or feeling ready to consolidate some of that high-interest credit card debt, you could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed-rate home equity loan with zero closing costs, or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses much more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. Loans subject to approval. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.